U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined once again by the XO, Christoph. How you doing, buddy? I'm on top of the world, Dale. Everything's going great. We're back again, and I'm very excited. Nice. So, where we left off, we were covering the American Revolution, doing the overview. So, if you are ready to get underway, we'll just jump right in. Let's jump. All right. So, from the spring of 1776, France and Spain had informally been involved in the American Revolution. Uh, French Admiral, I'm going to butcher the heck out of this, La Touche Treville was providing supplies, ammunition, and guns from France to the United States after Thomas Jefferson encouraged a French alliance. Uh, Guns like the de Villiers type were used. And I will tell you what that type looks like here in one second. These were cannons. Uh, They're very ornamental. Of course, they're French. They have to have style. Yes, they they are. Uh, they only come in four sizes: twenty-four pound, twelve pound, eight pound, and four pounds. And they had two types of mortars: eight and twelve-inch mortars. Oh, and they also had fifteen-inch ones too. Kill. Well, how about that? They also used the uh, French weighing, so the uh, they were a little bit bigger than the English equivalent. So this was about the time, I think, that the metric system was developed. And so I'm wondering if that's starting to cause some, uh, you're starting to see some differences, gun size perspective, or I'm sure there was some kind of standardization internationally, but I don't know. Well, not between the French and the English, because they hated each other. Well, right. But I'm sure they captured each other's guns and to use their own shot and the captured guns and I don't know. Well... Uh, at this time, the French one French pound equaled one point zero nine seven English pounds. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's, uh... And the French inch was two point seven zero seven centimeters longer than the English inch, which was two point five four centimeters, and still is. <laughs> I'll add. Yes. Huh. So. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so like if you have a a French cannon that's 12 inches, is it French inches, English inches? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing for the sake of uh, what you're communicating to our audience will be the standard inches of today, so people know what we're talking about. Yes, at least we're going to do our best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, after the Battle of Saratoga and the French became aware of this victory, they became concerned that the British would, you know, get along with the Americans Mm -hmm. after that, and then turn on them. Uh, King Louis XVI was actually influenced by a a report that suggested the British was preparing to make a huge concession to the Americans, and then ally with them, and then strike the French and Spanish possessions in the West Indies. To uh, try to keep this from happening, they made a treaty of alliance with the United States on February 6th, 
1778. Hmm. And they, uh, in this treaty, they were like, um, you Americans are to seek nothing but absolute independence from Britain. That sounds like some world-class intrigue. If I was an American and I'm like, how do I get the French involved? And it would be, oh, I'm going to communicate to them that we're we're going to come to a deal with the British and then turn on them. I'm sure France would be like, mm, how can I prevent this? Ah, I will ally with them. And so my my gut, which has historically led me wrong, but I think this is an American trick. Now, uh, right before this, France had only been willing to uh, to fight alongside Spain. But once this treaty is signed, they are now willing to go to war by themselves if they have to. Now, uh, the British, they're not going to take this line down. Uh, you want to know how they responded? With a strongly worded letter. More. Oh. They recalled their ambassador. But, you know, the uh, Franco-British hostilities, they, they, they kept the lid on that until about June 17th, 17th. So a couple more years. I could see that. In 1776, the Count of Arenada met with the U.S. as a representative of Spain. And they, he met with uh, the first U.S. commission, which had Benjamin Franklin... Silas Dean and Arthur Lee in it. The Continental Congress had told these guys to travel to Europe and forge alliances with other European powers that could help break the British naval blockade on the Gulf or on the East Coast. Or what they like to call it back then, the coast. Yes. Arenada invited the commission to his home in Paris where he was acting as the Spanish ambassador. And he became an active supporter of the American cause. Now, he did eventually get overruled by Jose Monino, who was the first count of Florida Blanca, who wanted a more secretive agreement with them. They, they didn't want it out in the open, because, you know, if these uh, young Americans got beat... Yeah. Who are the British going to look to next? Yeah, they'd be on the hook for sure. Yeah. Now, the Spanish ambassador to the French court, the a guy named uh, Geronimo Grimaldi, he wrote a letter to Arthur Lee, who was in Madrid trying to persuade the Spanish government to open an alliance. He said that, quote, you have considered your own situation and not ours. The moment is not yet for us. The war with Portugal, France being unprepared, and our own treasure ships from South America not being arrived makes it improper for us to declare immediately. So that that means, you know, dude, we don't got the money yet. Yeah, stop being selfish. <laughs> Now, he also reassured Lee because the stores of clothing and powder that are at New Orleans and Havana are for the Americans. And uh, there were other shipments of like blankets were being collected at Bilboa or Bilbao. Bilbao. I've heard it both ways. <laughs> 
So Spain does finally enter the war June of 1779. And that is going to be putting in place the Treaty of Aranjuez. The Spanish government had been providing assistance to the Americans since the very beginning, but it did not officially recognize the United States. The Dutch Republic also had assisted the Americans since 1776 and then declared war on Britain at the end of 1780. And they did recognize the United States. That's, that's a quite a long time to before declaration, I guess they just, or recog, recognition, I should say, in alliance. Uh, I'm curious to see what's happening in the war in the 1780 time frame to see what motivated the Dutch to actually commit. Oh, you know exactly what it was. That's the British going downhill. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I was uh, speaking on behalf of the listener. So that's going to bring us to the 1778-1781 time frame. So following the surrender at Saratoga and concern over the French intervention, the British decide to accept the original demands made by the American patriots. Parliament repealed the remaining tax on tea and declared no taxes would ever be imposed on the colonies without their consent, except for custom duties. Now, a commission is formed to negotiate directly with the Continental Congress for the very first time. The commission is empowered to suspend all of the other objectionable acts by Parliament passed since 1763 and issued general pardons and declared a secession of hostilities. So the commissioners, they arrived in the United States in June of 1778 and offered to place the colonies in the condition of 1763 if they would return their allegiance to the king. Bend the knees, young ones. That's a thing that I had not, that isn't echoed as loudly, I guess, in my education. This seems like the Americans got pretty much everything they wanted out of this, with the exception of independence. With this, so that's that's not bad. Yeah, I mean they're they're getting there. Uh, they also agreed that no troops would be placed in the colonies without their consent, but Congress refused to negotiate with the Commission until they first acknowledged American independence, and or withdrawing all troops. Now. October 3rd rolls around, and the British publish a proclamation offering amnesty to any colonies or individuals who accepted their proposals within 40 days. And they implied very serious consequences if they refused. And, you go, of course, there's no positive reply to that. Right. No, guys, we're not playing that game. Give me liberty or give me death. Literally, that's what they were saying. Oh, yes. So the guy on the crown, the guy wearing the crown at this time was King George III. And he he gave up on trying to subdue the Americans by sending more armies. Because they were still fighting wars in Europe, too. Yeah. He, uh, he, he was quoted as saying, it was a joke to think of keeping Pennsylvania. <laughs> like, who wants that old stuff? I guess, colony. I was going to say state, but that hadn't happened yet. Right. Um, there was no hope of recovering New England, but the king was still determined to 
quote, never to acknowledge the independence of the Americas and to publish their contumacy by the infinite prolongation of a war which promised to be eternal. His plan was to keep 30,000 men garrisoned in New York, Rhode Island, Quebec, and Florida, and he would have other forces attack the French and Spanish in the West Indies. So at this point, Florida is a part of the Spanish Empire, so that's really interesting. Well, I mean, they're not friends with Spanish. Oh, no, they. I think or... everybody hates the British. Yes. They're just jealous. Oh, they, they're very jelly. <laughs> so to punish the Americans, the king planned to destroy their coast coastline trade. They He wanted to bombard their ports, sack and burn the towns along the coast, and turn loose the Native Americans to attack the civilians in the frontier settlements. The king felt that this would inspire the loyalists to, quote, would keep the rebels harassed, anxious, and poor until the day when, by a natural and inevitable process, discontent and disappointment were converted into penance and remorse, and they would beg to return to his authority. Dang, that's um, some high-minded talk. So this plan meant the destruction for the loyalists and the loyal Native Americans, which is a indefinite prolongation of a very, very expensive war. And it had a risk of disaster as the uh, French and Spanish assembled a armada to invade the British Isle themselves. Dang. Uh, the king, he had hoped to resubjugate the U.S. after dealing with the uh, European allies of the Americans. So that will bring us to the northern theater in this time frame. So the French, when they entered into the war, this, you know, made the British necessarily have to change their strategy. Clinton abandoned Philadelphia to reinforce New York City which is now vulnerable to the French Navy. Washington followed Clinton when they withdrew through New Jersey, and they Washington attacked him at Mammoth on uh, June 28, 1778. This battle was tactically inconclusive, but Clinton was able to re successfully retreat to New York. This was the last major battle in the North. Clinton's army went to New York City in July and got there just before a French fleet under a guy named Admiral d'Esting arrived off the coast. Washington and his army returned to the White Plains in New York, which is just north of NYC. And now both armies are right back to where they had started two years earlier. So the nature of the war has now changed because the British had to withdraw troops from North America to counter the French threats where they popped up. In 1778, the Americans attempted to capture British-held Newport, Rhode Island with the help of France, but th this failed because the French, you know, withdrew. The war na in the North now starts to bog down into pretty much a stalemate because neither side is capable of attacking the other in any real decisive manner at all. 
at this point, given the insecurity of the British units, so like the mainland from Spain and France as well as the troops in America, I'm guessing supply lines are probably interrupted at the very least. So the British troops probably don't have as much powder or ammunition or anything like that, right? Well, I mean, it becomes more of a war of attrition. The British try to wear out the American resolve by launching a number of different raiding expeditions, such as Tyron's raid against Connecticut in July. And uh, But the Americans do have two very good morale-enhancing victories by capturing posts at Stony Point and Paulus Hook, except that the British quickly, quickly retook them. I guess it showed that they could, though. Like, they were able to do it. So even though they were recaptured, it was, I can see, a morale boost. Yeah. In October, the British abandoned Newport and Stony Point because they needed to start consolidating their forces. Their their, their troop shipments are getting delayed. It takes a while for reinforcements. Now, then the winter rolls in. And the American army suffers... Uh, even worse hardships than they had at Valley Forge. Um, Congress is ineffective. The colonial currency is worthless. And the supply system is fundamentally extinct. Washington is finding it very, very, very hard to keep his army together, even without any real major fighting. Um, In 1780... Mutinies break out in the American camp, and the Continental Army strength dwindles to such a small number that the British decide to make a couple of probing attacks against New Jersey in July. But the New Jersey militia, they rallied very, very strongly, and the British were like, whoop, that failed, let's get back home. (laughs) Turn around, run! It's kind of like all the infighting it with America and the potential mutinies or the actual mutinies as well. It's kind of like when you see a couple out on a date, but then they start arguing and it gets heated. And then you're foolish enough to try to intervene, as the British did in this case. And then yeah. all of their their anger gets focused on you. That sounds like what happened with the New Jersey militia. It's like, oh, oh, you want to get involved? We'll show you. We just went through hell, and you think you're worse than that? Yeah. Let me just put you in your place. Yeah. Uh, So, Benedict Arnold, you know that guy's name. I do. You know, he won at Saratoga, and he's he's getting more and more uh, bummed out and disenchanted with the, the war. And this is when he decides to defect. Uh... This is September of 1780, and he attempts to surrender key American force at West Point, which is along the Hudson River, to the British. But, of course, somebody finds out about this, and they stop him. He ends up escaping and joins the British Army. What a turncoat. Yes, that's why his name will ever will forever be associated with traitors. He wrote an open letter to justify why he did what he did. He claimed that 
he had only fought for a redress of grievances. And since British had withdrawn those grievances, there was no reason to continue fighting. Why are we still bleeding? We got what we wanted, which is what you said earlier. That, well, he's not, not that I often come to the defense of known uh, historical traitors, but he's not wrong. Like, it's like, look, if we're fighting for this and they're giving it to us, what's up? Right. So, and, and his other point was that uh, this was, it was made even worse when they had made an alliance with a ancient and tyrannical enemy. You know, France. Yeah, I, I, I know of them. They, they have quite a colorful history. Yeah. Uh, he actually led the last British attack in the north which was a raid against New London in September of 1781. So let's go to the uh, western and northwestern front. This is west of the uh, Appalachian Mountains and along the border with Quebec. The American Revolutionary War there was an Indian War, as it was said. Most Native Americans did support the British. Uh, so the Iroquois Confederacy and the Shawnee, they split into factions. And the Chickamauga split off from the rest of the Cherokee over differences in uh, trying to do peace with the Americans. The British supplied their native allies with muskets, gunpowder, and advice, while loyalists led raids against civilian settlements, especially in New York, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania. There were joint Iroquois loyalist attacks in Wyoming valleys and in Pennsylvania at, at Cherry Valley. And this provoked Washington to send the Sullivan Expedition into western New York during the summer of 1779. There was a, just a little bit of fighting as Sullivan systematically destroyed the Native Americans' winter food supplies, forcing them to flee permanently to British bases in Quebec and in the Nigeria Falls area. So during the Illinois campaign of 1778, the there was a guy named George Rogers Clark. He was a Virginian frontiersman, and he tried to destroy the British influence among the Ohio Valley tribes by capturing the outposts of Kaskaskia and Chukia, and also Vincennes. This is all in the Illinois country. The British commander, a guy named General Henry Hamilton, he goes in and retakes Vincennes. And Clark was like, oh, no, you didn't. And he captures Hamilton in February in response. In March of 1782, uh, militiamen in Pennsylvania... They murdered about a hundred neutral Native Americans. This was the, oh, I'm going to butcher the heck out of this name, and I apologize, uh, but I'm going to try my best. Yenadin Hutton Massacre, and this was one of the last major encounters of the war. It was 200 Kentucky militia being defeated at the Battle of Blue Lakes in August of 1782. Uh, so that will bring us to Georgia and the Carolinas. 
you know, North and South Carolina? Oh, yes. You, you know they're both different, right? Uh, very much so, yes. Okay. So during the first three years of the war, the primary military encounters were in the North. Uh, but there were some attempts to organize loyalists it, down South. A British attempt at Charleston in South Carolina failed. And a variety of efforts to attack the British forces in East Florida also failed. Uh, when the French entered into the war, the British turned their attention to the southern colonies. And, you know, it's warmer down there during the winter, so I, oh, yeah. I would imagine they wanted to go down there, too. I, I like to do all but, my vacationing and warring down south for the winter. Right. So they had hoped to regain control by recruiting a large number of loyalists. This was the Southern strategy. And it also had an advantage of keeping the Royal Navy closer to the Caribbean. And that's because they needed to defend their economically important possessions against, you know, the French and Spanish. You know, I hadn't even considered that um, from a Revolutionary War perspective. But as soon as the Spanish and the French get involved in this conflict, I mean, that's... With just with the exception of the Dutch, which apparently come in later in 1780, they all four of them have a lot of key interests in the Caribbean. Yes, they do, and then so will the United States after this, right? <laughs> so December 29th of 1778 rolls around, and a force from Clinton's army in New York captures Savannah, Georgia. Now the French and American forces tried to retake Savannah, but failed on October 9th of 1779. Clinton was like, whoa, look at what I did. Now let's besiege Charleston. And they capture it, and most of the Southern Continental Army, May 12th of 1780. Now Clinton suffered very few casualties and had now has the biggest Southern city and seaport. So this was a really good boom boom for them because this is a really good jumping off point for further conquest down south. Absolutely, yeah. So the uh, few of the uh, guys who survived from the Continental Army, Southern Continental Army, they start to withdraw to North Carolina and they are pursued by, gang, by a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Banastri Tarleton. And he defeats them at the Wax Hawes on May 29th, 1780. So after all this, organized American military activity in this area is relatively gone. So the war is carried on only by partisans, you know, uh, you know, um, rebels and uh, guerrilla warfare type stuff. Yeah, guerrilla warfare. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Cornwallis now takes over the British operations, and uh, Horatio Gates arrives to attempt to counter him. On August 16th of 1780, Gates is defeated at the Battle of Camden in South Carolina, and this sets the stage for Cornwallis to invade North Carolina. Um, Georgia and South Carolina are now restored to Britain for the time being. What a huge de- – I mean, that's a, quite a morale boost to the British, I'm sure, with um, almost getting there with so many of the New England uh, colonies, but then getting pushed back. And now they have secured uh, a handful of the colonies, some of the bigger ones too. Yeah. 
Now, Cor Wallace, he tries to advance in North Carolina and was very frustrated at this. A loyal wing of his army was completely destroyed at the Battle of King's Mountain on October 7th, 1780. And he had to abort his planned advance for a little while. He did end up receiving reinforcements, but his light infantry was defeated by a guy named Daniel Morgan at the Battle of Cowpens in January 17th of 81. But, you know, Cornwallis, he ain't going to let let him just run all over him. He wants to keep proceeding. He was a gambling man. And he gambled that he would be able to receive loyalist support. Uh, so General Gase is replaced by a guy named General Nathaniel Green. And he evades contact with Cornwallis because he needs reinforcements. He's like, oh, you can't catch me until I get more people. <laughs> Oh, you missed me there. Ooh, you missed me here. I guess with fewer people, it's easier to run and hide and, uh, you know, disengage. Now, that changes in March when Green gets to a point where he feels that he could face Cornwallis in the face. So this is the uh, key battle of Guilford Courthouse. And Cornwallis drove Green's army right off the battlefield. But to achieve this victory, he did suffer about one-fourth of his army to casualties. Whoa. And something that's really not helping him is that there are a lot less loyalists joining up than he had expected. Because, you know, the uh, Patriots or the U.S. guys, the the Americans are putting heavy pressure on them and their families, kidnapping people. Wait, I'm sorry. So the Americans are kidnapping who? They're threatening to kidnap their families if they fight for the British. Wow, that's uh, not something I read in the history books previously. That's, But apparently it was effective, because I certainly wouldn't want my family kidnapped. No. By some rogue up-and-coming nation. So Cornwallis decides to go back to the coastal Wilmington, North Carolina area to resupply and reinforce his army, which leaves the Carolina and Georgia interiors open to General Green, who then proceeds north into Virginia. So the American troops with the rebel partisans, they began reclaiming territory in South Carolina and Georgia. And even though the British did have victories at Hobkirk's Hill and the Siege of 96, they are about halfway through the year being forced to to withdraw to the coastal lowland regions of uh, both colonies. The last battle in September of 1781, which was the Battle of Utah Springs... That's Utah with an E. This was indecisive, but the by the end of the year, the British had only Savannah and Charleston in their hands. Everything else was in the hands of the evil Americans. So that brings us to Virginia. Cornwallis proceeds from Wilmington north into Virginia. On the grounds that Virginia needed to be subdued in order to hold the southern colonies. 
So in January of 1781, a small British force under Benedict Arnold. Yeah, that bastard. Uh-oh. Yeah, that, it, stuff's about to go down. Yeah, he lands and begins moving through the countryside, destroying supply depots, mills, and, you know, other economic targets. Uh, in February, General Washington, he takes a guy named General Lafayette and says, go counter Arnold, kill that SOB. And then he also sends a guy named General Anthony Wayne to also go after him a little bit later. That sounds like Washington. Yeah. Uh, Arnold is reinforced with troops from New York in March. Arnold and Cornwallis, they meet in May and combine their armies. Lafayette, they skirmish with Cornwallis, uh, but they do avoid a large-scale battle because everybody's trying to get reinforcements. Yeah. Now, Cornwallis did have a bit of pushback by his boss, a guy named General Clinton. Remember him? We've been talking about him. I do. Because... Uh, Clinton, he did not think that a large and diseased-ridden area with uh, a hostile population could be pacified with just his few men that uh, Cornwallis had. Clinton favored conducting operations further north in the Chesapeake region, where he believed that there was a lot of people friendly to them. So when uh, Cornwallis gets to Williamsburg... In June, he gets orders from Clinton to establish a fortified naval base. And a he also requested that they he send several thousand troops to New York to counter a possible Franco-American attack. So, he's a good old boy. Following his uh, orders, he fortifies Yorktown. And he waits for the arrival of the Royal Navy. Uh, the northern and southern naval theaters, they converge in 1781 at Yorktown, Virginia. The French fleet arrives and are now available for naval operations against the British. And they are trying to decide whether to go after Yorktown or New York. General Washington, he's like uh, New York. Duh. Oh, but the, he's a Virginian, though he's not loyal to his hometown, but rather well, the capital right. of the United States. Well, remember he's north of New York. Oh, that's right. Yes, please help me. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. <laughs> but the French decide to send their fleet to Yorktown instead. Uh, when General Washington learns of the. This decision by the French, he begins moving his army south to help out the French. Because unlike the French, in, apparently, General Washington's a team player. <laughs> well, let's continue the story and see where we go. See who's a team player and who's not. Yeah. Uh, now, the British, their fleet... They did not realize that the French had sent their entire fleet to America. So the force that they sent under Admiral Graves was inadequate. 
but you know, by this time, the, the the British Navy weren't the most organized, or you know, they've suffered losses, a lot of losses too, because guess where the Americans are also attacking? Uh, I don't know. They are raiding British towns in the UK. What? We'll get more into that later. Yes, yes. that's bold. <laughs> Now, because of the France and Spain, Spanish entry into the war, the British now lacked the amount of ships they needed to match everything that the uh, three combined fleets are doing. That's incredible. In September, French naval forces defeat the British fleet at the Battle of the Chesapeake. This cuts off Cornwallis and his escape route. And since he was also still expecting to receive support, he was not able to break out when he had the chance. And when Washington and his army arrives outside of Yorktown, Cornwallis was like, well, crap. And he, uh, he, he gets defeated. The combined Franco-American force of 18,900 men besieges Cornwallis. Wow. In October. And for several days, the French and Americans bombard the British defense. And then they start taking areas. Now, the British, to their credit, they did try to bring in relief forces. But they got delayed. Uh, Cornwallis is then forced to surrender his entire army of 7,000 men in October of 1781. This was the exact same day the British fleet in New York finally had their act together and sent relief. Oh. Their relief supplies to him. Too late, New York British. Looks like Yorktown may have been the... um... The better choice. <laughs> so the news of the surrender at Yorktown got to the UK in November of 1781. King George III, to his credit, took the news with British calm and dignity and delivered a pledge to continue the war. He's like, all oh, these, the, these little people they ain't gonna get the best of me just a minor setback that's that's what we see and the house of commons most of them they actually endorsed this they they endorsed three nations against one or two nations and a fledgling community against one (laughs) right a fledgling community that's been kicking their butts anyway (laughs) well we did have some help right but, you know, a few months after this, um, more news arrives that are bad news for the British. The French and Spanish successfully take several West Indian islands, and they are appear to be on the verge of completely expelling the British from the Indies. But who's going to make all that British rum? Um, I guess the French or the Spanish. They can buy it from, you know, the people who actually have the the people that are actually the rightful owners of that island instead of the 
You don't understand. British invaders? They, the British had a flag. Did the local people have a flag? I don't think so. So, well, there you How go. How do you know? Were you there? Were you there? I, How do you know I've they didn't read, have a flag? I've read books, okay? Oh, oh books. More, books. More than one. Plural. Books. <laughs> mm. So that's all you need, huh? It's a flag. So I can come over to your house, put my flag in your yard, and now whoa, your house whoa, is whoa, mine. Whoa, 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 whoa. You assume I don't have a flag. If I already have a flag out there, uh, that's tough. You're going to have to move on to the next backyard with no flag. Oh, no, I just take it down and put my flag up. Oh, that's when battle occurs. You see, I don't know if you've played video games, but capturing the flag, that's a big deal. Mm. We'll, we'll get into this more later. Okay, good, yes. This this deserves a, a proper breakdown. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, a guy named Mikora, he surrenders to a Franco-Spanish force on February 5th. 1782 and Gibraltar is now in danger of falling as well. So when parliament sees all of this happening in February of 1782, they were like, okay, let's put it to a vote. Who's in favor of ceasing all offensive operations in America and to seek peace with the Americans. And everybody raised their head hands and said, I, um, they also threaten votes of no confidence, and the uh, Lord North resigns, and his Tory government is replaced by the Whigs. So, and from the beginning, like in an earlier episode, you mentioned that the Whigs were traditionally more uh, sympathetic to the American cause, like even before the Declaration of Independence, right? Yes, and the Tory government was like, no, we need a put these whippersnappers in their place. Right. We are the British government. We own the world. Uh, now, the funny thing is, is shortly after Lord North and uh, his government left, the British win the Battle of the Saints, which uh, puts an end to the French that threat in the West Indies. They also successfully uh, rescue Gibraltar. So had uh, Lord North and his Tory government held out for a couple more months, they would have been considerably strengthened by these victories and would have been able to continue the war. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I guess another victory for democracy for America because the, the monarch wanted to continue and then the voting representatives ceased operations and, whew, that was a close one. Yeah, because this new Whig administration, they accepted American independence as a basis for peace. And there are no further major military activities in North America. You know, even though the British still had 30,000 men garrisoned in New York City. Uh, well, between New York City, Charleston, and Savannah. Right, okay, yes. Uh, the war also did continue elsewhere, which included the siege of uh, Gibraltar and naval operations in the East and West Indies. And this was until the peace was agreed to and signed in 1780. So that is where we're going to leave the American Revolution for today. Next time we're going to get in more into the uh, naval aspect of all of this. Excellent. Yes. So we are partnered with 
herocars.us, where we honor our fallen angels at the end of every episode. Today we are honoring Sergeant Richard Merle Lord. He, his hometown was Trenton, Florida. He served in the Marine Corps, 1st Battalion, 8th Marine Regiment, 2nd Marine Division, 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Um, he received the Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was August 18, 2004. Killed in action in Al-Anbar Province, Iraq. He was 24 years old. Ricky Lord's mother, Karen Latham, said that her son dreamed of serving in the U.S. military from the time he was a boy. She told the Gainesville Sun, quote, He would come home after school and put on his G.I. Joe outfit and climb up in a tree and ask me if I could still see him in his camouflage uniform. Lord graduated from Trenton High School in Florida in 1998 and immediately enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. He was sent to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in Paris Island in South Carolina for basic training. For his first assignment, he was sent to the Marine Corps base at 29 Palms in California, where he was trained for his military occupational specialty as a field wireman. He was responsible for connecting and maintaining essential systems of communication. Sergeant Lord's time as a Marine allowed him to see the world. Family members recall that he'd get a tattoo as a souvenir from each place he was sent. One of his favorite stations was Okinawa, Japan. While there, Lord treated his older sister, Kimberly, by paying for her to make a six-day visit. He intended to be a career Marine. In 2002, he re-enlisted as an anti-tank missile gunner and was trained at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina on tow missile systems. Tow is tube-launched, optically-tracked, wireless-guided. According to his fiancée, Rosanna Powers, Lord was assigned to the 26th Marine Expeditionary Force and from March to November 2003 served aboard the amphibious assault ship USS Iwo Jima, LHD-7. After his time on the Iwo Jima, Lord was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 8th Marine Regiment, 2nd Marine Division, 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force, based in Camp Lejeune. He attended Ranger School at Fort Benning, Georgia, but his time there was cut short when his unit deployed to Iraq in June of 2004 as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. His unit was stationed in Fallujah, Iraq, and by this time, Sergeant Richard Lord was in his second four-year enlistment and decided it would be his last, preferring to spend more time with his growing family at the end of his tour. Sergeant Lord's fiancée recalls that her brother, Lance Corporal Caleb Powers, was also stationed in Fallujah at the time. Ricky Lord hadn't yet met him, but told Rosanna that he thought he knew where to find him. He'd be meeting his future brother-in-law soon. Uh, The two men would never meet. Rosanna Powers would bear the loss of both men within a day of each other. And on August 18th, Sergeant Richard Lord was lost in a roadside bomb attack in Iraq's Al-Anbar province. Sergeant Lord was 24 years old and left behind his fiancée, Rosanna, a two-year-old son, Richard Nero Flash Lord, and a 10-month-old son, Brody Lord. In August of 2010, Gilchrist County, Florida, dedicated a section of highway as Sergeant Ricky Lord Road in his honor. So, Richard Mural Lord, thank you. Thank you. All right, that's going to be it for us today. Christoph, would you like to take us out? Uh, certainly. Uh, first of all, as usual, thank you so much for listening to 
our ramblings about history. We're having a good time doing it, and I hope you're having a good time listening. Uh, if you want to contact us and uh, have questions or requests, or maybe there's something coming up in the revolution that you really want us to focus on, send us an email uh, at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, additionally, you can contact us on the the website formerly known as Twitter, X, uh, at usnhistorypod. We're still not X-rated. We're not, yes, well, correct. Yes, not yet. Who knows? The future is ahead of us. We can make, we have agency. It's very exciting. Um, I can't remember what the next thing is. Yes. Uh, Discord. If you would like to join up with folks that talk about the podcast or Navy stuff or just want to get to know folks with a common interest, join us on Discord. You can find that link in the show notes. And then we are on YouTube as well. If that is a preferred vehicle for you to listen to this podcast, we can check that out. Uh, wherever you go to listen to us, please rate us, preferably highly, because that does help spread the word, and then more people will listen, and then you grow the community, and you meet more friends. Isn't that what it's all about? Absolutely. I, I think that's everything. <laughs> Let me know if I've missed anything, Dale. Uh, it sounds good to me, my friend. So let's go ahead and wish everybody fair winds and following seas. Goodbye, everybody. Take care. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Mm-hmm.